0: It's the Fun to Know Podcast with Dan Buskirk. On today's show, the second and final part of our conversation with comic performer Greg Proops.
1: We were watching uh, *Monty's Falcon a couple weeks ago and just grooving on Peter Lorre. he He's unforgettable on screen. He's feline, he's pansexual, he's continental, he's louche. My favorite Laurie story is uh, he went to Bella Lugosi's funeral with Vincent Price. And as they were walking away in Hollywood, he went maybe we should drive a stake his heart just to make sure. And I'm like, I don't care if that really happened or not. I want it to have happened. And I think he had that kind of sense of humor.
0: Welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast, where we engage in conversation with writers, artists, and musicians of various stripes about their life and work. My name is Dan Buskirk, and I've been kicking around the edges of public radio for 30-odd years and can currently be heard weekly on a show devoted to Jazz Music Mondays on WPRB Princeton. I also write regularly about film at Falker.com. That's P-H-A-W-K-E-R.com. The Fun to no Know podcast, always with a numeral 2, originates at SoundCloud.com and can be found through iTunes and Stitcher. You can stay updated on new episodes through Fun to Know Podcast on Twitter, and you can reach us through the Fun to Know Podcast page on Facebook, and it would be heavenly if you could leave a review of the show at iTunes. Now, onward to part two of our interview with stand-up and comedic performer Greg Proops. Greg's weekly podcast, The Smartest Man in the World, delivers comedy and political wit by the bushel as he records the show from stages around the globe. Greg also has a monthly spinoff podcast, the Greg Proops Film Club, where he hosts and discusses classic film. Discussion of film and classic Hollywood takes up a big part of this week's program, but we also discuss Greg's on-running chat shows, feminism and misogyny, family, Udu Kier, silent film, True Jackson VP, and we hear Greg's Jeff Goldblum imitation not once, but twice. Two minor notes. At one point in the conversation, I'm grasping for the title of an early Hollywood film where Peter Lorre plays a killer. The title I was looking for was Stranger on the Third Floor, a 1940 film directed by Boris Ingster, considered to be a proto-Hollywood film noir. Later, Greg is cagey about the name of the comedy he is presenting later this month as part of the Turner Classic Movies Film Fest in Hollywood. The film has since been announced. It's the Hepburn and Tracy classic Adam's Rib from 1949, directed by George Cukor, co-starring the inimitable Judy Holliday, and written by the great actress and screenwriter Ruth Gordon with her husband, Garson Kanan. It's a film that helps reveal that much of what we love about Katherine Hepburn is the way she channels the chatty persona of Ms. Gordon. Greg presents the film Saturday, March 28th, and the show will be taped for a future episode of the Greg Proops Film Club. Let's go to the interview. As with last week's show, we peppered the discussion with a few relevant short clips called from Greg's podcasts. We'll hear one such short clip as we roll into the conversation.
1: get at tonight was the subject of goddesses. Uh, we have pictures now, and we have lots of good-looking ladies in the movies and all that. I, I was looking at Vanity Fair just today, and it said, Jennifer Lawrence is the most desirable woman in the world. Um, and that may, that may well be true, but how old is Jennifer Lawrence? Does anyone know? 20? 19? 22 or 23 uh, I, I, That's desirable She's also would be If I had a child She would be right around My child's age So it's not as desirable To me as it might be uh, I think I'm a little more On the Sharon Stone uh, uh, Thank you Susan Sarandon uh, Gina Davis tip Is where I'm coming from Thank you Very much I, th- I, I can appreciate beauty In young girls uh, I think uh, Perving on it too hard Sends you into a kind of FM shock jock area That I'm not willing To go into <laughs> I, I don't want to be, yeah, I don't want to be known as, that's all right, honey. You ever sit on something It's All right, all right. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that guy.
0: Um, among, <laughs> talking about the things you rage about on your show, one of the, the, the elements I, I really enjoy is your uh, your refreshingly vocal about being a feminist.
1: Well, thank you. And, uh. Feminist uh, perv is my new feminist. title. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, but it really, uh, points to a whole nother way of looking at the world we, that, uh when you really think of the, the the problems of the world, everybody agrees that we're facing giant problems with the war and with the, the environment and everything. And this is a, a world that is run by men, and yet these are never presented as the problems of men. These are presented as the problems of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me how you, you came into uh, your feminist perspective.
1: Well, my wife had a great deal to do with it. Uh, she kind of hipped me to the jive that uh, uh, things weren't the way they said they were. The other thing is, and I've... I probably hit this too hard over the ears and my father has no way to defend himself because he's quite dead. Uh, much to the betterment of society, by the way. But uh, um, he, uh, he was a screaming misogynist. And uh, the names that he used for women were vile to me as a child. The way he viewed women uh, really never settled with me. Uh, I, didn't, I don't hate my mother and, and sisters. Uh, he seemed to not feel very strongly about any women. They were, he used terrible pejoratives about women. Anyway, I didn't like it. So that always set me in the other direction. I thought, why are you this violently predisposed to be this kind of misogynistic asshole? I don't get it. Uh, what did women ever do for you? You know, I, uh, I met I met his aunt. I, my His mother I didn't know because she had a stroke when I was little and I never really met my grandmother on his side. But his aunt, who was her sister, I did. And uh, she was highly educated and absolutely charming. And I knew her from her 80s till her 90s when she finally passed. She was quite Jewish and lived in New York and went to the opera and wore a fox fur and lived in a little rent-controlled apartment and... She told me the first person she voted for was Roosevelt. And I said, did you see Christopher Plummer play Barrymore on Broadway? And she went, I saw Barrymore. (laughs) She goes, I was the high school drama critic for my high school paper. And I interviewed and Fontaine. Like she was, you know, so old that her history was fantastic. And I thought, you never told me about this. It was always just, you know, money, money, money. My dad was very, (laughs) you know, obsessed with money and a misogynist. And it just drove me mad. Uh, And then my wife, like I say, Growing up in the Bay Area and living in San Francisco, you're, you're in a different atmosphere than you are in uh, Oklahoma or Kentucky. That's all I – I don't know how else to put it. The way women are viewed, the way women were – I was always in comedy, and there were women in our comedy group. Uh, the, and then when I was a stand-up comic, there were women comics. And uh, not as many as men. Now it's getting – you know now it's much better. But So that's how I kind of came by it. And then it, it occurred to me a few years ago – that um, I have to be even more of an advocate than I was. Uh, my stand-up was always anti-misogynist, but then I found that I said lots of sexist things too. Of course, like we're all racist and we're all sexist and we can't help it. I mean, you
0: know, we, we live in that stew. It's hard for yeah. that stuff not to get into our subconscious and sometimes right. come out.
1: Yeah. And so uh, I decided on the podcast that I was really going to lay down the law and just go like, "Look, you guys, the problem with the world." as you say, the world's not seen as men's problems. The problem with the world is that women's problems don't come first. If they are taken care of first, then everything's alleviated and nobody believes that or or there's like this huge resistance to that because that's not what fits in with what's going on. Um, So I can't, uh, uh, the sad part or the, not frustrating, I'm not frustrated. The sad part to me or the depressing part is that more men don't feel this way. Uh, And I mean by that, comedians and podcasters too. They could do a lot more. They could do a lot more about uh, supporting women and what women are doing. And I just feel like kind of the brothers need some re-indoctrination. Because... (laughs)
0: Uh, my uh, my 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 party showstopper when I beat somebody sexist is to say, well, I really believe that all the men should be put in re-education camps. Mm-hmm. And we should, you know, the women should take over, put us in re-education camps and slowly re-educate us and maybe let us back out to, mm-hmm. to roam free once we understand a few
1: things. Yeah, and men won't have it. Men get so angry and huffy uh, doing the stand-up show. You know, I, I have a giant port in the middle that I've tried to couch with lots of humor on the other side of it so that people don't freak out when I get to it. Well, I talk about how men treat women, you know, and the crowd goes quiet. If it's date night, you know, and you're trying to get laid and you brought a girl out, the guys go quiet and I'll say to them, you know you've gone quiet now instead of laughing at all the things the women are laughing because the women are laughing and I'm like, guys, this is your moment to have her see you differently, not just the predator who wants to fuck her, yeah. but, but, like a human that is on her side. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you got her back occasionally. <laughs> the simple fact of the world is that men hassle women incessantly sexually. And that in the uh, less enlightened parts of the world, the, the whole thing that went on with India, the, the gang rape on the bus was one element in the poor rural parts of India. Uh, women are simply trying to go to the bathroom and they don't have toilet facilities in their towns. So they go out to use a bush and on their way out to the bush, they are raped. And that happens consistently in India, and it's an enormous epidemic there. The Boko Haram that's running through Nigeria is, of course, going into villages and is taking all the girls. ISIS, uh, I've read about women fighters who are fighting against ISIS, who are various tribes, Kurds, whatnot, Christians, saying they'd rather kill themselves than be taken captive by ISIS. Yeah. Um, the oppression toward women is just extraordinary, and it goes on in every country all the time. Mm-hmm. And it, to me, it's the number one story in the world that men run the news, and uh, as a friend said to me years ago, um, white middle-aged men run our uh, news editors and therefore what happens to them is news. So in the old days, it used to be plane crashes. Uh, if you remember in the 80s, uh, planes would crash and they go, oh my God, planes are crashing. It was always on the front page. It was like, flying in a plane is the safest thing you can do. White middle-aged men take planes. Yeah, therefore that's an issue. Um, the fact that... Uh, Women are beaten and killed by their boyfriends and husbands consistently. And the, is it the number two cause of death in pregnant women in the United States? Is yeah. being killed.
2: Yeah.
1: Murder is the number two cause of death. Not, you know, uh, it, it. so... Look at the way rape is treated in colleges across the country. Well, That's come uh, up know, recently. And yeah. then um, uh, the, 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 the young lady who was tra- dragging her mattress around... Uh, uh, Columbia they've been trying to impugn her and say that her story was bullshit and that's always how it goes and I remember uh, I won't go into who it was but uh, when the the Duke lacrosse team had done their awesome gang rape I remember a friend of mine was like totally that fucking lying whore you know and you're like really that's how you perceive it you don't perceive that women really are victims a lot of the time mm, yeah they lie every once in a while they're humans they lie too we all lie um, that's not what women are lying about. Yeah. The issue in this country is It doesn't is not- really bring a lot of positive attention to you to make up that lie. It's like voter fraud. The idea that women are lying about being raped and the idea that people are p- purporting to be voters and somehow getting away with something are complete fallacies. No. Fallacies. There's no substance to them and no evidence for it whatsoever. The real truth is it's horrible for women if they're assaulted. Who are you to go to? Um, what happened in the military last year was an absolute fucking shocking scandal and the fact that they didn't do anything when they brought it up and 30 something thousand unreported rapes in the military and all they did was shuffle some papers around and they didn't even fire anyone yeah. and it was like the Chief of Defense Gates and all of them are as culpable as fuck. Uh, and w- moreover, Obama's uh, group of Secret Service guys are the rapiest group of fucking drunken asshole yahoos that ever fucking sat around that office. And, and they finally fired their, the chief of the Secret Service. She had to resign. But you remember when they were in South America two years ago and they were refusing to pay hookers and yeah. staying up all night running in the hallway. Fucking, they did everything but shoot guns off in the middle of town. Um, isn't it time to revamp? Uh, that's when you fire that's all of them. Yeah yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, the same thing goes back to, you can say anything like, uh, uh, Condi, Condi Lisa Rice was national security advisor when 9-11 took place. The biggest breach of national security in the history of the country. The Pentagon fucking hit with a plane. Uh, 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 terror- giant coordinated terrorist attacked everywhere. They made her Secretary of State. Uh, fire her, fire her. You were national security advisor. You failed in your job to provide security to the nation. Secret Service... Uh, all of you, you're out, you're out. Part of the reason why Carter was so vilified and why the CIA is so powerful now, uh, particularly in the post-Reagan years, is Carter fired hundreds of agents who were corrupt, who were taking money uh, and from the Golden Triangle. Uh, there was Edwin Wilson who was selling search to Libya at the time and whatnot. And they used to jail CIA agents or fire them. Uh, and... and that was too much for the intelligence community. They didn't want to be cleaned out. They didn't want an internal yeah. review. They want to be able to do whatever they want whenever they want to, which is assassination, murder, black ops, all that shit.
0: And once there's that air of impunity to any any crime, it's it's a cancer that really just takes yeah. over. Yeah.
1: So I talk about women a lot on the show. Uh, Congress has 100 women in it. That's not even half the Congress. Uh, there's 25 women senators or 20, 20 to 25, I think, 25 Uh, that's uh, puny puny. Uh, we haven't had a woman president. Um, the good news is we've had women secretaries of state. Uh, I think Obama is, um, a terrible feminist. I I, I think his heart's in the right place sometimes. And he certainly talks the talk, but he never walks the walk. And I think Michelle, um, I don't know anything about their personal relationship. If I were her, I would feel the way she does now, which is, I think she's at the fucking snapping point of like. She's a smarter, better educated lawyer than him. Yeah. She's uh, more canny than he is. And she watches the kind of shit he does. And I think she probably is boiling inside sometimes with those two teenage daughters. Did you see the turkey episode at Christmas yeah. or Thanksgiving? Uh, oh, where the, the, the daughters were de- very... <laughs> the daughters were rolling their eyes, legs, <laughs> legs in front. Of, when you're, Everything's in the body posture, right? Crossed <laughs> legs while standing, arms folded, heads up, eyes rolling. They were absolutely checked out. And Obama had to do the, I'm the middle-aged dad, isn't this funny and cute. And they're, for all we know, they're vegetarians. Yeah. And they were repulsed beyond measure. Now, these are two highly educated teenage girls. And there's nothing more powerful, as you know, in the world than a teenage girl. They're the scariest force of nature. Yeah. Just as scary as they were when I was a teenager. Yep. Yeah. A teenage girl, a, a group of teenage girls will, scare you, will kill you. They'll <laughs> scare you to death. They have all the power. And uh, I just feel like he could have done so much more. You know, gay rights have made such a huge jump in twenty years. From yeah, Clinton, and just the,
0: just the fact that he had to play that whole charade of "I've, I've finally changed my mind.
1: I've grown into this you. gay." Yeah,
0: yeah. Fuck
1: you. How really? I changed my mind about having black people be leaders. How does that grab you? You know what I mean? They, like, doesn't anyone perceive it that way? Yeah. Your mother was white, and your father was black from Africa, and you had to evolve on your gay point of view. Well, how about evolving right now? Yeah, you're pretty bright. You're a Harvard law professor, even though you never observed the law.
0: I feel pretty uh, pretty lucky. I, <laughs> I had I had a revelation uh, as you know, probably a nine or a ten year old uh, in, in the neighborhood. The the big status. Uh, was how good of kickball you were? Right, I remember and, kickball. Uh, I was terrible. At I was terrible. Yeah, I was. I was. I was, I was, I was pr- probably the well, most well-read person on the team. Right. But um, there was a girl in my neighborhood, Marne Norris, and she was really good at kickball. And I remember sizing up the competition and going, "Hmm, I guess girls are better at some things than guys." Mm-hmm. And uh, I, that sort of stuck with me. You know that re- yeah. and th- that reality. You
1: know. Well, but it's, it's something that men have a real problem with. Yeah. Uh, and even, even, especially including liberal middle class guys really could use some fucking shaking up in their viewpoint on women. I mean, when you look at the gaming community and how they've been behaving in the last oh, couple yeah, of years, it's, it's absolutely shocking.
0: A woman got death threats because she was going to speak in uh, Colorado yeah. and, and they said that they couldn't stop anybody at the door who had a gun. Yeah. Because it's an open carry right. state. And
1: yet we're supposed to believe that gaming's benign. Yeah. And it's just this fun activity, even though it's filled with rape and murder of women. Uh, uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's as James Brown said, <laughs> it's a man's world. Uh, yeah, that's sort of why. I just think it's really important. And the good part is... Uh, uh, what are they called? what is it in Greek, right? That's what the Bible is, the good news. Yeah. Um, uh, the New Testament's the good news. Uh, the good news is uh, women really respond to it on my show. I don't know where I get off as a middle-aged white guy. Of course, when I say middle-aged, I'm going to live to be 110. Uh, as a middle-aged white guy, you know, propounding these ideas. But women really do respond to it. I get, when well, you're at the show, uh, half the women, half the audience is always women at my show. Always. And they dig it. I don't think that they have a lot of men in their lives that are saying the things that I say. That, and you certainly aren't going to hear it on television or on the radio or read it in the paper. You're not going to get it. Even your Comedy Central could be a little more uh, <clears throat> uh, women-centric. Uh, comedy is a really sexist society. And uh, I've never dug that that much. Um, certainly music has always been wildly. Yeah. But I mean, women women respond to it. And even more importantly than that, I have men riding me all the time saying, I never thought of it that way. And now I do. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean that I've changed them. Just that simply the only thing I was trying to do as a comic, which is, like you said, women can do things better than men. That's just a simple realization. Then the next realization is women are being trod upon then the next realization is, what can I do to not facilitate that? And then, yeah. Yeah. so I get that all the time. I had a guy at a very large entertainment company that I work for occasionally say to me, after listening to your show, he has two daughters. I had never thought of it that way. Well, and he has two daughters. That's and he goes, now I do think of it that yeah. way. And I thought, so the women around you all the time didn't, <laughs> enla- you, what do you just don't listen to them? Their, their high peeping voices go right through you, do they? I mean, I'm not to say I'm a perfect gender or anything. I get as annoyed with my wife as anyone does with their wife. You know, you're in a marriage. uh, I'm annoying too. But But you don't go, girls. No, (laughs) it really drives me mad. One of the things I liked when I was in the Persian Gulf was we were at some giant airbase, and uh, there was thousands of us at some gathering. We weren't. I think we were performing that night. In any case. Uh, the commanding officer got up and she was a woman and she was uh, about as tall as your wife yeah. and uh, like Captain Lisa somebody and she had a high squeaky voice and she stood up there and everybody, <laughs> 10 hut. And she went, tonight we're going to do this and this and this and they fucking listened to her yeah. and I thought, that's the, that's the spirit. That's it's, it, if, if it requires in this closed society rank and order, of course discipline, yeah. they were observing it. There was no Oh, that little bitcher! I can't believe she has it. Everybody just fucking... Yes, sir. <laughs> fucking Casablanca was on the other night. Holy shit. You despise me, don't you? I suppose if I gave it any thought, I would.
2: <laughs> Fuck yeah.
1: I mean, honestly. I know Green Lantern is gonna be awesome. You're just being a dick, Greg. Right? I know, I watch a lot of black and white movies. That's why, though. I mean, you know, we have this discussion at home a lot, you can probably imagine my wife and I are sitting around throwing Leonard Malton at each other <laughs> and she insists that Citizen Kane isn't the great American film and I agree I concur um Casablanca is really Citizen Kane. The difference is, and this is why, C- Casablanca is entertaining and clips along at a breakneck pace. Citizen Kane is a marvelous film and has lots of insight and is well made and beautifully cast and uh, uh, unforgettably shot. The shots are what you remember, which uh, would speak to why it's not the greatest movie of all time. If you're remembering shots, then you're not... I mean, yes, I quote my favorite quote and the one I always quote is, any fool can make money if that's all they set their mind to, right? Because uh, that's what I always think about when people... People go, well, they're rich. (laughs) Well, hoo-ha for you. Uh, If all you think about is making money, then good for fucking you. Get through the gates of heaven with the camel and the needle and all that. Uh, But Citizen Kane's not funny there's two or three laughs in it and they're dire and then there's lots of parts where friends betray each other and, and horrible marriages that go nowhere with no love and then and, and shit like that and Cain is ultimately not a figure that you even admire but rather strangely from a distance fucking feels shitty about. Uh, whereas in Casablanca, Humphrey Bogart couldn't be more self-pitying an alcoholic at one when he's waiting for her in the fine so she shows up at the fucking bar then he's getting drunk and the piano player comes in and goes let's go let's go let's get drunk and he goes no she's coming I know she's coming and at one point he's so fucking drunk he knocks his glass over and booze goes everywhere and the piano player picks it up and at that moment she walks in and she's silhouetted in white in the fucking door with a giant hat on and that's when you go this movie's more in her fucking than Citizen Kane <laughs> talking about stealing elections and corrupt politicians and fucking sleds that lead to oblique childhood memories that aren't explanatory in any way let me get this straight you were happy before the age of 7 when you played in the snow when Agnes Moore had ignored you and that's the best moment of your life or something whereas Casablanca is pretty fucking clear he's a self-loathing alcoholic who's fought on the side of the Spanish in the Civil War uh, on the side of the commies and he always fought for the losing side and they go well you always fought for the losing side the winning side would have been better and he was like well I'm a bad business man <laughs> and then what does he say uh, uh 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 why did you come to Casablanca I came for the waters waters there's no waters in Casablanca I was misinformed <laughs> there's really never been a better line in a the movie there's no waters in Casablanca it's a desert I was misinformed <laughs> You don't have to write anymore You don't have to go I feel jaded because I've been hard done by My life experience has led me to this point Where I want to drink every night And never have any stable relationships I don't feel very good about myself Having this woman walk back into my life Is bringing back a lot of buried memories That I would have rather let lie now I'm forced to confront them against the backdrop of an entire world at war. He doesn't say that. He simply says, I was misinformed.
0: You have a gig that does make me envious, that uh, just that any, any film lover would be envious about, and that's that You've uh, talked film on TCM. Oh, yeah.
1: Um, I got really lucky Maybe the about, only
0: channel on cable in, in my book.
1: It's the only one I watch. Yeah. Um, a uh, guy named Scott McGee, who works there, was listening to my podcast and heard me talk about film. So I was playing in Atlanta two or three years ago, and I got a, you know, the, through the club, oh, they want you to go over to TCM. And I'm like, I'd love to. So I went over to their studio in Atlanta, and he interviewed me for his, like, video podcast podcast because um, uh, th- my friends Chris Mancini and Graham Elwood do a show called The Film Nerds, and they wrote a book. And they commissioned each of us to write a chapter. That's how they did the book, which was very well done. They had Alan Havey do war films. Alan Havey. Yeah, Matt Weinhold did Love sci-fi. Uh, and Matt Weinhold,
0: I, another Le video customer. Yeah,
1: Matt Weinhold was a big-time <laughs> Uh And I did a film noir. And so I think we got $100 or something. You know, we did it because we're all buddies. And so I wrote my little chapter. And said, fuck, if I'm, fuck me if Scott doesn't take out the book and go, here's what you said. <laughs> And then you realize once you put something in print, like how immutable that is, like you, you can be quoted back to yourself, which is like, oh no, I wasn't ready for that. Uh, uh, you said this about this film. And then of course I do impressions for him. I do George McCready and Peter Lorre and all the old, that, know, that the kids don't know at all, but think are hilarious anyway. You I, think go Lenny,
0: to, I think Lenny Bruce did George McCready. Right, that's why
1: I do George McCready, because Lenny Bruce, uh, 50,000 paces, and she thinks it's cute. Isn't she fabulous? Um, the, uh, uh, you can go into voice auditions and do old movie characters and people think you're doing an original thing you thought of. Yeah, I did Peter Lloyd on an ABC show about four years ago and Fred Willard was the host of it. It was a really crappy improv show. We did. Well, I shouldn't say that. What if the producer hears me? It was an unsuccessful improv show. We went up against the Olympics.
0: No fault of the producers.
1: No. We went uh, up against the Olympics and we it was called Trust Us With Your Life. We took a celebrity and we'd act out their life in improv scenes. So we did, I was on two, Ricky Gervais and uh, 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 Serena Williams. Serena, and,
0: Serena Williams, the tennis player? Oh, yeah.
1: Very much so. And she was with um, uh, uh, Common at the time. So I met Common. And uh, well, this was in London. Uh, it was about four years. Well, the Olympics, the last Summer Olympics. Yeah. And... Uh, we went up against the first week of the Olympics, and I think got a one or two share. Then the next week, and they showed both my episodes fantastically, so mine aired. <laughs> then Fred got caught in that porn theater thing. Oh yeah. And then they pulled the show. And then their reason was, <laughs> well, we pulled it because you're not doing very well. But it was obvious that the Fred thing, and, and of course, I wrote Fred, and you know, he didn't. It didn't really go down the way they said it did. But in any case, on the show, I went. <sighs> you don't like me, do you? Or something like that. And at the end of the sketch, Fred went, did you just do Peter Lorre? And I thought, that's hilarious because no one, when we were little, it was in all the cartoons. That's yeah. how we knew it from the yeah. old cartoons. A fish would come out of the water and go, now I've seen everything.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I watch cartoons with my kids sometimes and it'll be a modern cartoon and somebody will be Popping in with something very Laurie. Well, Ren and Stempy. Yeah, yeah. I have to say, you know, this
1: is they're doing Peter Laurie right. Yeah, now. isn't Ren totally Peter Laurie? Yeah, absolutely. Stempy, idiot.
0: One of the most exciting people ever on screen, I think. Peter Laurie. There's Me something too. about him that is. He's unmuted.
1: feline. He's pansexual. He's continental. He's louche. Yeah. There's something exciting, like you say. But we were watching a um, big uh, Maltese Falcon a couple weeks ago, and just grooving on Peter Laurie and he goes through the gamut of emotions when the the gig is up and and the, the falcon's not real he goes you idiot you ruined everything and then he falls into his chair and lights a cigarette you know like he and he's clearly kind of gay in that one. Yeah, like he's, even makes a nod. Yeah, like, hmm, yeah. You're hurting <laughs> me. Yeah, yeah. He smells of lavender, and he's got his hair brilliantined and everything. And it turns out it was he didn't. He took some horrible medicine that made him that fat. It wasn't his own doing. He was quite ill, and he only died at sixty. Um, So there's the two periods. There's the really thin... Well, there's three, obviously, the Ufa. The
0: real squirrely... Yeah, and then he came to
1: America, and they had to teach him English. So the first role he did in English, he learned fanatically. And then he learned English quite well, obviously. Then by Casablanca, him and Green Street are in eight, seven or eight movies together. Yeah, they were a pair. They wouldn't quit teaming them because everybody loved them because they're so brilliant together. Yeah. yeah. There's something... And I don't think Green Street started acting... In the film, until he was 60. He was a stage actor and had run a rubber plantation. Lori <laughs> escaped from Germany and had made all those, made M with Fritz Lang and whatnot. And then um, my favorite Lori story is uh, he went to Bella Lugosi's funeral with Vincent Price. And as they were walking away in Hollywood, he went, Maybe we should drive a steak through his heart just to make sure. <laughs> And I'm like, I don't care if that really happened or not. I want it to have happened. And I think he had that kind of sense of humor. Yeah.
0: Yeah. He was in what they often refer to as one of the first film, Noirs, that has uh, the incredible dream sequence in it. Am I going to be able to remember this title? I don't know. He's the killer in it. Dr. Mabuse or something? No, no. no. It's it's an American film. American one. And uh, I can't know. he's the killer. And there's a scene at the end where he's leaving... Uh, He's walking with, with the woman, and, and, sh- and she realizes that he's the killer. And uh, it's, uh, for somebody who can seem so humorous, boy, he can be chilling. As, uh, can he just? Yeah. yeah. He,
1: he's unforgettable on screen. He's in Casablanca for four minutes. Oh, really? That's I mean, or ten, maybe. So I mean, like, he's name. in the first scene, and then he's in the second or third scene, and then they come and get him, and that's it. Yeah. He's gone he's only in the first act of the movie and you never forget him in the movie like any movie he's in
0: yeah he's one of the most quotable people in that
1: film he makes a yeah. huge you despise me don't you I suppose if I gave it any thought I would you have more respect for me now don't you what is it and I got the letters of transit from the Germans poor Delos <laughs> and it's clear he's stuck to Germans yeah. with a knife to get the letter. and then Bogart turns and goes he says, uh, you have more respect for me now. And he's like, no, I, I do, Ugarty. <laughs> now that I know you cold-bloodedly killed two guys to get the letters of chance, I do. Yeah. That's the kind of world they're... Le- and he, I have another drink, please? <laughs> the sweating. Uh, what's the one uh, with Cary Grant? Uh, where uh, It's supposed to be Karloff, but in the movie it's uh, uh, the guy who played Lincoln. Um, Raymond Massey? Raymond Massey. Where the old ladies are burying the bodies in the basement. Arsenic and old ladies. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Laurie's the, yeah. The, the the drinking assistant in that one. <laughs> Just to put him in a movie, gives it a, 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 a... There's a German actor, now is in his 60s, named Udo Kier. Sure. Uh, and I always thought that Udo Kier was as close as a modern Peter Laurie as there could be because he's got that pseudo-sexual German kind. Yeah, he's like a walking
0: transgression.
1: Yeah, right? Yeah. That's a beautiful way of putting it. And, of course, he's in those two over-the-top uh, Paul Morrissey movies, uh, Dracula and, yeah. <laughs> and he has my favorite line in Frankenstein, to because Udo Kier is not afraid to go over the top. And he's in, you know, like, uh, what's the what's the Wesley Snipes one that had the vampires in Atlanta? Uh, Blade. Blade. He's in a couple of the Blades. He pops up in everything, and he was in Lars Ventura's... Uh, Breaking the Waves. Yeah, he was in. in that giant hospital. What was that? The Horror. Kingdom. Yeah, Udo in yeah, now. Yeah, and The Kingdom 2. He's the, yeah. like, overgrown baby or right, whatever. Right, it's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he's in the Mark of the Vampire, whatever the name of that movie Mark is. Of the Mark of the Devil. Mark of
0: the Devil. Mark of the Devil. They had the, the they had barf bags, uh, and it was about the you know yeah. witch hunters. That was a sensation in my very religious small town. Yeah, I, I, yeah. That film. My father called the theater manager and said, Would it be okay for
1: his teenagers to see? He says, This film isn't fit for anybody to see. Yeah. It's like, No, I've got to go. <laughs> yeah. Got to go. Uh, the, no, there was a vampire movie that Nicolas Cage produced that had. Um, John Malkovich and Willem Dafoe. And they, Shadow of the... Yeah, that's the one. No. And they're shooting him. Uh, Murnau's vampire uh, uh, Or not... Uh, Nosferatu. Nosferatu, that's it. And Max Schreck is Max uh, Schreck. Willem Dafoe. Yeah. Willem Dafoe steals the whole movie. Udo Kier's in it, but he only plays one of the crew. And I was really disappointed. I, I'm not a huge John Malkovich fan. I, I won't spend time banging on him. But I will say this. Udo Kier would have been a better Murnau. Yeah. I, I totally know John Malkovich does the one thing that he always does. Udo Kier would have made Murnau into an insane person, because <laughs> uh, Willem Dafoe's so great in that movie. No. What does he say when he's drinking the? You set a mean table. <laughs> what about the script girl? I'll eat her later. <laughs> Clattering his fingernails and wearing the hat from the 1400s because he's 700 years old or whatever. And God, I loved him in that. But Udo Kier, what does he say in Frankenstein? Um, To know death, Otto. To really know death you must fuck it in the gallbladder. Like, it's this, this, <laughs> fantastic. He screams the line out. You must fuck it in the gallbladder. He, he's great in the, uh,
0: <laughs> the Marcy Dracula as yeah. well, because, uh, yeah, he's, he's pale and, and yeah. sickly. It and he, and uh, he can only, yeah, he can only bite virgins. And unfortunately, this group of uh, women that he's come upon are all not virgins. Right. And he's, you know, and sickened the by their tainted blood. Yeah, and he's
1: always barfing up blood. <laughs> He's really a. Then they chop all his arms off like a Monty Python sketch, and he runs around the screen with blood sporting out of him for fucking ages. I was I saw both in the drive-in in the seventies. Oh wow! Well. That was drive-in fair. Yeah, just yeah. smoking weed in the car and like, oh my god, these movies. There's so much entrails. One of them is in 3D, I think. The
0: Frankenstein's in 3D. Frankenstein. And when uh, Udo gets the uh, gets a large, uh, you know, stick through him and yeah. uh, the. His, part of his entrails hang yeah. over the audience yeah. in 3D, yeah.
1: Fantastic.
0: Great cinematic moment.
1: Yeah, really, marvelous cinema. <laughs> but I think he's a really, there's also a really arcane movie that I saw at a festival with my wife years ago by Wim Wenders called uh, The Brothers Glagowski. Uh-huh. And uh, it's a picture about the Germans who created film at the same time as the Melees, right? I'm mm-hmm. uh, Not the melees, the, the Lumiere's. Uh, it's exact same time period, right turn of the century. And they're they magic lantern artists in Berlin. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, like all filmmakers were, they all started from theater. They were already doing visual. Mm-hmm. Basically, there was film before there was film. I don't know how to explain that to people. Mm-hmm. and uh, Or motion film. The, the idea of motion film is, is the oldest. When they show those cave paintings uh, and the buffaloes are on top of each other in sequence, that's clearly something that if you took a torch and wipe it over it,
0: Trying to capture the, the idea, yeah, of,
1: gives motion. The idea yeah. of motion. Uh, and you add some songs to it and s- some psychoactive uh, <laughs> berries and whatnot, and you got yourself fucking movie, you know? Uh, so, in, in that picture, he's one of the brothers Glagowskian. and uh, Vendors is so meticulous. They used their camera. So, it's this turn of the century, hand cranked, fucking little black box. And one of the daughters was still alive. She was 98 or something when they made the picture. This was years ago. And she's in their movies. She's a five-year-old. Oh, wow. the, like the, like the Lumiere's have their children mm-hmm. in the movies. And uh, so it goes through their whole story and they make their movie and they're going to premiere it and they, they can't get the film right. The sprockets don't work. The, 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 the celluloid they're using breaks too often and burns and they can't quite get the fucking mechanism. And they go to Paris and they go to a big theater and there's a sign out in front, Lumiere. And they go in. And they watch and it's the fucking train and the hose and they cry. And they're like, the Lumiers did it and we can't do it. And they didn't do it. So they're not famous filmmakers, but they're the first Germans to try to. So Wimders, because he's German made this picture about them. And he's, he plays one of the filmmakers. And of course it's fantastic because it's Udo Kier uh, playing (laughs) a German, which he is. And, and they interview because the film is about the film. It's a film about film they interview the daughter and they put her in it and there she is 100 and she goes oh yeah you know we would get on the roof and my dad would shoot me and wow and so you're seeing the entire history of cinema because mm-hmm. cinema only goes back 100 and now 120 years or whatever but not very far yeah 1890s yeah uh, it's so new
0: still i've been hosting a, a series of silent films uh, at the rotunda here in town in philly and, uh, boy, to, to look, especially at the end of the silent era and, the, and the, by the mid-20s or so, like, they'd really figured out pretty much everything at yeah. that point,
1: you know. that uh, There's handheld camera work. Yeah. There's uh, montage.
0: Uh, I was watching a film from, from 1916, and there it really was. We we're just going to capture a stage show. And you sense that—that's why the actors are really overacting yeah. because the, the camera's not helping them at all, you know. But by by the time I was watching this film *Wild Oranges*, uh, you could uh, really see where the camera became this expressive instrument. That was the the, the big revelation, and and from then it, it looked the, the film's directed like a film any film from, from the next forty. Oh years yeah, well look years. at all
1: the Germans. I mean, uh, 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 now mm-hmm. who made *Caligari*? I'm I'm blanking.
0: Uh, Murnau is it Murnau? No, no, it's not Murnau. No, it's, it's
1: not. Uh, uh, that one is, has those hand-painted sets and the real surrealistic viewpoint. And then yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Dreyer and Murnau are just so unbelievably creative. Yeah. Uh, Sunrise the, has been a long time favorite. Sunrise, of Ryan, yeah. From Murnau, yeah. Was the, w- the casket in Nosferatu when it runs down the road and jumps into the carriage. Yeah. And that's still scary. Okay. And also the thing that people don't... People don't like silent films because they think they don't like black and white films because they think they don't like old things because they don't relate to whatever it is. Whereas we look at it like it's a fascinating look at almost a documentary of what life's like then. This is You're looking at pre-World War I world mm-hmm. and it's that imaginative and it's that extrapolated and like you say, it's that modern. Uh, people want the same things. Silent films are never black and white sometimes they're black and white. Yeah, They're brown, they're red, they're blue, they're green. Yeah, a lot of tinting. They're tinted to death. Yeah. And they shift the tint for the mood. They shift the tint, the music, the music and everything supporting it. And, you know, it's hard. It's a bitter pill trying to get people to swallow old movies, <laughs> yeah. but it's an even bitterer pill to get them to swallow silent films because they're so, like... I don't want to watch it. It doesn't have talking.
0: You know, what's funny is I I teach, uh, I occasionally teach uh, kids, uh, middle school kids, and the the silent films are the ones i show are almost always go over yeah. um sherlock junior from oh, from buster keaton oh or God. the kid right. from chaplin there is that first 5 minutes where they sort of try to get acclimated but then like the belly laughs start and there's nothing more rewarding than uh-huh. to really have these kids falling out over uh, silent you know silent
1: films well yeah. also it is a bit youtubey though. you know there's that uh, they're used to yeah they're, The one-reeler's back, you know what I mean? And the two-reeler's back in a huge way because the phone only can contain so much or the bandwidth or whatever. Everybody's used to watching a short little thing now. Yeah, and that certainly was the currency of silent films. And I
0: do think, at a certain age too, the the vocabulary and the archaic vocabulary g- can lose kids. Yeah. But with with silence, when it's all taken out of the physical action, like there's something very direct for for a lot of the
1: kids. I think you're right. The dialogue does take people out of old. Movies. Like I remember, I was on a kids show on Nickelodeon, and we were doing what a show scene. was this? Uh, it's called uh, True Jackson VP. <laughs> Kiki is now on. Um, uh, Broadway doing Cinderella. Uh, what was uh, your role on the? I was the boss. I played a fashion uh, designer who hires a 15-year-old girl to be vice president of the company. Good move. Ergo, the president, yeah. <laughs> what, what'll what happen? How will she get through? Probably with the help of her crazy friends. <laughs> uh, Robbie is a star now on The CW, and he was in Tomorrow People, and now he's got his own superhero show. Matt Shively just got cast on something. These are all the kids from the show. Ashley Argoda's uh, uh, doing a, a Pat Benatar, Romeo and Juliet musical in L.A., and also... She's on a, uh, an ABC Family show. Uh,
0: wait a minute. The, the Pat Benatar, Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, you heard me, man. Lost it's
1: called there. Love is a Battlefield. <laughs> really? I'm like, not fucking kidding, man.
0: Scored by Pat Benatar yeah. songs?
1: Yeah. I guess they used the songs throughout. Uh, she's quite a good singer. They're all very talented. They, uh, uh, Kiki and her, you know, they didn't have any childhood.
0: Yeah, you have to admire people that really, honing their craft at such a young age. I, I,
1: gave, uh, I gave Ashley, um, I gave Kiki for her Christmas one year. I said, what do you want? She went, Dante's Inferno. So I bought her Dante's Inferno. I said, what do you do with a 16-year-old millionaire, you know, black girl who wants Dante's Inferno? You give it to her. Uh, And she gave me a Kindle because she's like, I know you like to read. Uh, Ashley, I said, have you ever seen The Wizard of Oz? And she went, no. So I gave it to her. And there was a big poster of The Wizard of Oz in our upstairs snack room. And I said to my wife, how could a child not have seen The Wizard of Oz? Jesus Christ. And she goes, Greg, you were having a childhood when you were a child. She was rehearsing Because she started in The Lion King when she was probably seven, six. Wow. So, you know, that's their life. But we were doing a scene, and it was in a castle. It was a very funny, you know. A guy had kidnapped us and taken us to a castle in France and shit. Of course, we're on the soundstage, Paramount. Soundstage 26, where Danny Thomas shoot, make room for Danny. And uh, stage 25 was the Lucy show and cheers. They called it the lucky stage. We were on those two stages, so it was really fun. And there was a plaque that I took a picture of, of course, because it said... Uh, Lucy Show Bosom Buddies Cheers uh, Fraser, uh, uh True Jackson <laughs> and um, so uh, and the stage was ice cold by the way like the air conditioning and I one of the old hands on the set I said like he was in his 70s why is this set so cold and he's like Kelsey did a lot of coke man
0: <laughs> he was a little sweaty
1: <laughs> keep that temperature pretty arctic in there Uh, We were doing the scene, and we're on 26, which was so spooked that we actually, uh, we burnt sage, we burnt sage to uh, uh, expunge the evil spirits from stage 26. Anyways, uh, to make a long story short, we're doing the scene, and I started doing it like it was a 40s movie. Say, we've got to find a way out of here. Uh, uh, That's a great idea. That's swell. And... I remember Kiki, who's was probably 16 or 17 at the time, went, why did people talk that way? <laughs> you know? Like, they knew what I was doing. Uh-huh. They'd never really seen any old movies. They'd never seen Jurassic Park. But remember, they weren't born when it came out. Like, yeah, to yeah. us, it's... You were 100 when it came out. To them, because I would do Richard Attenborough, and, like, I would do impressions. The crew would laugh, and they would be like, what the fuck are you doing? The only one that they knew was um, Jack Nicholson. Oh, really? They knew... Michael Caine and Jack Nicholson, Michael Caine's Alfred.
2: Hmm.
0: Yeah, I remember talking to kids,
1: uh, Bill Murray, blank stare. Mm -mm. They didn't know who Bill Murray was. Bill who? Did not know who he was. Not know. Yeah. And I do Jerry Lewis, and the crew would laugh and they'd be like, Who are you doing? What is that? Why does everyone think that's funny? Uh, But I remember she said, Why do they talk that way? And I went, It was a style. And I go, People did talk that way, they used that slang. But the emphatic delivery was an absolutely an American movie style. There was a way to be in a movie, and the way was to you really heightened your emotions and you brought everything up. And then by the fifties, we go the other way. And then yeah, there yeah. still exists. There's still Charlton Heston and all the stodgy, uh-huh. you know, fantastic actors. But then it went more James Deany, Marlon Brandoy, Montgomery Clifty. And yeah, then by the sixties, it's now it's churning and terse, and now it's you know, Clint Eastwood and Steve McQueen who don't even want to talk, you know, it's, it keeps evolving, you know, because I think the way people act in movies now is completely corny. Oh, yeah, yeah. Terrible. Like, you could see these fucking, Rom-coms and shit, and their acting is bloody awful. And
0: and when you're in the midst of it, it's <laughs> it's hard to see exactly the stylistics that are at, at play. Yeah. But you know, go go ahead ten or twenty years, and you and you realize the certain stylistic quirks of each each era style. Right. And part of loving movies to me was sort of like being able to crack the code on each mm-hmm. era and 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 understand what the style was about and how how it worked. You know,
1: I mean, I think the golden age has a lot to give you know so uh, i've got to work for turner uh, i did the i did some promos for them for their pirate movies which was great fun uh then uh i showed uh, they've had me not show but like host uh, you, at their festival
0: did you pick the film no or?
1: sadly this year i did i can't tell you what the film is they've asked me not to suffice to say it's a black and white comedy oh
0: it's the live festival right yeah now, eh? yeah. yeah they do it a black and white comedy so hmm.
1: last year they had um uh well we've gone a couple times. And it's just, my wife can't get enough of it. Uh, Last year we met Kim Novak, we met George Chakiris. I mean, I'd met him before. And anyway, I I hosted the first year, uh, Road to Utopia. Mm -hmm. And then last year, Bachelor Mother. So it just means coming out and talking about the picture for about five minutes. And of course, some of the people in the crowd are wildly resentful. Who the fuck are you? (laughs) You Who the fuck are you? And um, other people are like, oh, it's you we well, are funny, so go up there. So, you know, I try to be light about it. And A Bachelor Mother is a wonderful picture and very female empowerment, you know.
0: I have to admit, you caught me with that. Well, one. it's, it's Bachelor A Bachelor
1: Mother. It's, she, it's uh, Ginger Rogers, who I think is the most underrated star. Oh, yeah. She's funnier than Katherine Hepburn. She's uh, as good an actress as Barbara Stanwyck. She's sexier than uh, whoever you can think of. She doesn't ham it up. Uh, and she can dance like the very devil. And uh, is a great comedian. In any case, A Stage Door, which has all those girls in it, Ginger Rogers steals that movie from everybody. She's from Medford, Oregon and was a straight-up Republican. And uh, her mother protected her and she didn't get raped by studio heads. And her mother actually protected other girls in Hollywood. If you watch Taylor Negron's story about Lucy, when Taylor passed, it went around the interweb. It's an amazing story he tells about going to a class and Lucy came to the class and said girls would arrive at Union Station and guys would pick them up and then they'd be violated and... mistreated and that Ginger Rogers' mother made it her fucking goal to keep these girls from being hurt because Lucy was mistreated horribly and violated and is telling these stories in acting class with a cigarette and Taylor's like you know losing his shit because it's fucking Lucy right and she well you'd come into Union Station and you'd get raped by one of the fucking you know like real honest stuff this is the 30s and of course Lucy's a complete contemporary of All those actresses, she, Katherine Hepburn, everybody, she's from the 30s. Anyway, in this movie, uh, she works in a department store and someone gives her a baby, like a baby's left and it sort of gets shoved onto her, like it's left on a church doorstep and she picks it up and they immediately think it's hers, Mm -hmm. right? They do all the the presumption that she's a bad girl and had a baby. And David Niven runs the department store and is one of his great, nitwit, clueless, rich guy characters, right? So he's like, oh, yeah, well, I do have a feeling. very attractive. Um, so he plays a nit, and uh, he makes all the presumptions about her, and they come to learn to love. And now she's sitting there, like, every night at home with the fucking baby, right, and looking at it like, God damn it, I had a life, you know? I'm, I'm a 30-year-old New York girl working, at, and now I've got this fucking baby. So she learns to love the baby. Her and Niven fall in love. Everyone tries to just stop her at every turn. And it's a super girl power. Like, she makes it through this whole thing and finds her way out of it. And it's screwball.
2: Wow.
1: It's screwball. Niven plays the same kind of part as he does in, like, Bluebeard's Eighth Wife. Niven's not, like, a great actor, but Niven's great at light comedy. Yeah. When you make him a nitwit, he's hilarious. Like Jude Law. Jude Law's not a great actor. But when he plays a nitwit, he's awesome. Yeah. As soon as you, oh, oh, oh I'm a bit awkward, then... I, I
0: love him in and Pressburger's uh, Stairway to Heaven. or uh, Oh, my God. He's wonderful life and death, that. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, when he really was a brave commando, I don't think he ever saw action, but he was certainly a commando during World War II. He trained for it and could totally ride and knew how to do a sword. And he'd yeah. been in the army for ages. He was a professional soldier before he was an actor. And yeah, and, uh, I,
0: I know mostly sort of a frail, older guy in my, the 70s. It was a revelation crappy, to go back and you know, see his early. early. Yeah.
1: Old Dracula and shit. Like, there's some real uh, cranky... <laughs> I don't think he ever turned down a fucking paycheck yeah, yeah. he liked to travel <laughs> but no he's the, he's the real deal Powell and Pressburger are we were, we were at the Cine family the other night showing uh, Serpico which Jennifer oh, that's picked that's right yeah. and uh, she picks most of your features yeah she, she does but I let her because uh, you know women uh, <laughs> she and uh, they showed a preview for um, uh, uh, Tales of Hoffman and I lost my shit. And about two scenes into it, I went, "Is this Tales of Hoffman?" And then, of course, it came up, and it's Tales of Hoffman. And I was just like, "I can't think of another directing team, or even a director. Maybe, maybe a Melville or a Kubrick. Not one inch of the screen yeah. is left to chance." If there's a shot and there's painting in it or a set or an actor or a costume, that's there for a reason. They picked it. Uh,
0: Since I always feel like as soon as you see the first frame, like I'm in the hands of a master.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think Black Narcissus might be one of the greatest movies ever made. Like, it's just a shocking. How did they even come up with the premise of the movie? And then they're not into that ever. Not one moment are they oh, into that. Set or, yeah. yeah. And, and there's those beautiful paintings and... Uh, Oh, God, Paul and Pressburger, Peeping Tom, all of their pictures are just...
0: I showed black narcissist to high school girls at a girls' like school. It? They must have loved it. I that. was wondering. I thought wow. maybe girls' school, this sort of like claustrophobic yeah, yeah, yeah. woman's the, setting will get to the them. Sexual I tension. I wasn't sure whether it was yeah. going to go over really, but when it got to the scene where the nun has uh, is seen in her street clothes and she pulls out the lipstick mm-hmm. and puts on the lipstick, close to, the close-up of the lipstick yeah. going on, huge gasp
1: among yeah. the girls. Like... <sighs> And I thought, oh, I got him. Got him. <laughs> it's a powerful movie. Yeah, yeah. It's a really powerful movie. Um, but I love that meticulousness. It's sloppy filming. Well, it can be fun, too. But
0: For I me, think- I sort of realized that they came from the same place that, that Hitchcock did.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, uh, that, that he was not a, alone, a master coming out of British film. There are other people there that were.
1: Yeah, you know, But you know. British film doesn't get the, Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then later there's the, the 60s directors who aren't as meticulous, I think. But uh, yeah. I mean, i I'd include Kubrick in it, but I don't think Kubrick has any of the heart. The, that, the
0: black and white David Lean films, I think, are also... Uh, I love David Lean.
1: Yeah. Jennifer really loves Great Expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a particular favorite of hers. And what's the other one with the... Oh, and that is the one with John Mills where he goes to London to make his way, yeah. and Alec yeah. Guinness is in it, and... Mm-hmm. There's uh, a, a twist. I I mean I Lawrence Arabia is one of my favorite movies, and I don't think a woman has any dialogue in it. I don't think a woman speaks in it.
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: Not one line. I think that might be right. And yeah. they, you hear Arab women go la, 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 on the hills a few times, but I don't think a woman has a line in that
0: movie. It's the first film I saw in seventy millimeter. And I remember in the first half an hour just being distracted at like being able to see sand on people's face grain mm-hmm. by grain and everything. The, the amount of detail was breathtaking, just
1: It's an extraordinary what did it take, two, three years? O'Toole had his nose done for it. I did. They dyed his hair. What did uh, Noel Coward call it? Florence of Arabia. He said, you're so beautiful. (laughs) Uh, Omar's still alive. You know, I had dinner with TCM people, and they said, who would you like to see at the festival? And I said, Louis Jordan, who passed. passed And I said, uh, Sean Connery, Michael Caine, Christopher Plummer, and Saeed Joffrey. For men who would be king they're all still alive that movie's from 1975 so they're not all going to be alive in a couple years they're all alive now and you could have all of them there yeah. and then i you know i give my stars and then they tell me who they're going to get well this year they got dustin hoffman and sophia lauren oh. so it's like <laughs> jesus christ how can i say anything you got though you know last year was richard dreyfus uh 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 thomas Schumacher. Yeah. uh um uh Paula Prentice and Richard Benjamin were there who I got to meet and touch. Uh, if I if I could have got Paula Prentice alone, there might have been trouble. She's kind of tall, isn't she? Oh, she's 5'11". Wow. She's almost, she's six feet tall. She's magnificent. And uh, I'd met her once years ago, which I didn't tell her, at a, a baggage carousel. <laughs> and, and I ran to up to her somebody. and accosted her and I was like, Miss Prentice, I think you're fabulous, and she goes. Richard's getting off the plane right now, and I went. Good for him. I'm talking to you right now. I swear to God, I, I completely shunted. So I made a, a Richard Benjamin take a picture of me and Paula, right? And I've got pictures of us. And I'm in. We're in the ante room at the Roosevelt Hotel, and there's antlers coming out of my head. They're on the wall, and I was like, "It's like True Detective," and they were like, "And Richard Benjamin, who's directed how many movies, goes." Do you fucking love True Detective or what? And we started in on True Detective. They were watching it every night. Yeah, And they were showing Henry Orient last year. So that's why Paula was there. Oh, really? We met Kim Novak, like I say. So this year, I, I couldn't be more excited to go. And uh, I'm going to show a black and white comedy. It's a wonderful comedy. I'm not going to tell you what it is because I've sworn to secrecy. But this, this time, I'm, I'm doing my show. So I've graduated from introducing a movie to this will be the film club. I'm going to sit down, talk about the movie. Then after the movie's over, we're going to take questions, talk about it. Uh, Doug Benson encapsulated it perfectly last time I was on his uh, show. He goes, the idea that you go on, talk about a movie, and then take questions about a movie that you had nothing to do with and nothing to do with the making of is the greatest premise for a show of all time. It's just because I like movies, but yeah. it's the first time we've shown one out of the cinema family, which is nice.
0: And, and to really do the research and really uh, know the background of the film, you can have something to share not well, as not as the film, not as a filmmaker.
1: Right? I mean, uh, I usually go off on tangents, as you've heard the show, uh, or talk about what my moviegoing experience is like in the seventies, which I don't think a lot of the kids know how important it was to us. We went to the pictures all the time. Yeah. Now I don't go to the pictures as much. I, I still go because I show a movie every month. So I'm more of a film goer than most people my age. And like when the TCM festival is, you know, you watch three, four movies a day yeah. or, and go see interviews. Uh, who wouldn't want to see Quincy Jones or Max and Cito talk about their fucking craft? You know, it's huh. like, um, but, you know, when we were teenagers, that's what you did.
0: There was, there, movies are so uncontrollable. You yeah. know, the fact that they were, there was almost acts of nature. So they really had this power that I'm not sure they, they have anymore. No. I remember as a kid going to the, the theater on Thursdays when they were getting the new prints. Right. And, and clandestinely going over and picking up the print can and feeling like the right. power of the film. Like, I can't believe I'm holding the film in my hand. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, they're not in cans anymore, except at the Cine Family where we show movies. Those are all 35. Oh, wow. Except for cough, oh, one of them. We had to show... One of the pictures on disc.
0: You had one one film that you did a, a show for that you never broadcast. Buckaroo. A, a buckaroo Banzai. That, that, that sounded like that was a... That would be a hit. Was it not... Did it not go over the crowd? Is that I what
1: happened? I did a dissertation on early film for about 35 minutes. Mm-hmm. And it was about the Lumieres and Melees and, you know, fucking Muybridge. I don't know. It was... It got too deep. <laughs> it's been a few years since I did it and I've never listened to it back. And... <laughs> I thought I was off topic so hard that I just shit canned it. Uh, It's probably not as bad as I think it was. How did the film go over? The film went over great. I love that movie. It's really long. It's it's an adventure comedy that's two and a half hours. I saw a print of it just a few years ago. Two and a half fucking... It's long. I mean, it doesn't drag. Mm -hmm. You're not bored. Mm -hmm. I was taken to see it. And when it came out in 83... Then I got my friend I took my friend Jay to see it I got him drunk and we went and saw it and I, everyone I ever took to see the movie loved it and, uh, then, it was supposed
0: to be a big cult hit right, kind of, it's uh, by design
1: yeah. It's it, it wasn't yeah. Um, it's a uh, it's a boys movie and the only woman I know who loves it is Debbie Durst who's Will Durst's wife uh, she loves the movie because it's always where are we going uh, planet what is it planet 10 when will we get there real soon <laughs> I, I always g- remember they decide, what's a watermelon doing in here yeah and they all they just and they got their guns out and they stop and it's just a visual gag. there's no reason for it <laughs> there's more bad colored lights and smoke in that movie than any and when they get to the alien's lair it's just totally lit you know there's no money yeah. um and the 80s costumes with the flipped collars and the plaid with the white <laughs> ties and the perfect tommy uh I interviewed Jeff Goldblum several times, and uh, he's a, quite a character. From he what really I is. He's amazing because he knows everybody. And uh, he was going through me with me in one of the interviews about Paul Schrader's top ten list of films, which is Tokyo Story and uh, uh, L'Aventura, like all the real esoteric, like completely esoteric, like sort of classic uh, international cinema. Theme. Right. And no, it was none of the things I would pick, which would be stupid and shallow. You know, my wife would pick four hundred blows, and I'd say, "Well, I like which county?" You know, <laughs> um, and, and uh, but I, the first interview I did with him in New York ten years ago, it was just a live chat show. I said to him, he was doing a Broadway play at the time, and he goes, "I, I, 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 can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, stay all night. I, 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 I've got, to, I've got, I've I've got a play tomorrow." <laughs> and I said, "The play's at night." I go, "What do you got a paper route?" <laughs> And he went, Craig Proops, Craig, Craig, you're so funny, you're so funny, Craig Proops. Uh, which I wish I'd had on a clip. The two greatest moments of my life are, like, I wish it was my answering on my answer phone. Uh, I met Geraldine Chaplin at Edinburgh wow, wow. like ten years ago. Uh, Schickle, uh, Richard Chickle had done a brilliant documentary on Chaplin in Sydney, and Geraldine were there, wow. and uh, I interviewed her on my chat show in Edinburgh. uh, She's an elegant woman. Really, uh, you know, whip thin, dancer, you know, total. And uh, with her makeup, uh, like rouge on the cheeks, and then two red dots on the inside of her eyes. Really strange. Like what we used to do for, you know, like basically stage makeup, you know. So I interviewed her about a bunch of things. And I said, about your father's predilection for young girls. And she goes... Father loved beauty. It's like he liked fifteen-year-old Scooch. Is what he liked.
0: Don't you just love Chaplin so much? Somehow you. I do. My I, wife uh, hates Chaplin. Yeah. I, 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 if there's if there's anybody in the world, I would almost make an excuse for you know right, uh, running into a fifteen-year-old like a like,
1: well, Chaplin,
0: a child at heart. Well,
1: to, for to his credit, he married them. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, no, he's. He, I think he invents film. Him, him and. Uh, Doug Fairbanks and you know. Have you seen
0: s- the seen the film The Dreamers, the Bertolucci film? No, no. There's a great discussion with the, who's better Chaplin or Keaton between these sure. French, uh, these
1: French. Wait a minute, is that the cynists? recent one that was? It's like ten years ago or something. Well, the, the three, it's the triangle, and they're yeah, it's during yeah, sixty eight. Brother, yeah, yeah, God. I've seen that one. I've yeah, that. and they're, they're super shallow. The bourgeois two, two don't understand that what the other guy's trying to tell them, and that yeah. they could get killed going out on the street. And yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. But he tells a story where he talks about uh he ta- talks about the end of the gold rush where Chaplin the the blind woman sees Chaplin for the first time and he says here here he is the most famous person in the world and yet when this scene comes up we're looking at him for the first time like that's great
1: direction well there's that whole Chaplin Keaton thing right and then supposedly cut Keaton's scene out of limelight or whatever Yeah, yeah. that he shortened Keaton's although obviously by putting him in it he acknowledged that Keaton was his also Keaton's voice uh, Chaplin's voice matched how he looked but Keaton's voice is so wonderful (laughs) though That raspy, that the way he talked. Uh, uh, yeah, Geraldine Chaplin said to me, um, oh, you're so funny. We were standing in like, uh, we were going in to watch the documentary and I would already interviewed her. We met and I was standing there with Jennifer. And she went, you're so funny. And I was like, Jennifer, how could I have recorded that
2: and have it as my
1: outgoing message and just be like, this is Charlie Chaplin's daughter. You're so funny. You're so funny. You're so funny. You're so funny. He's probably Australia's foremost aboriginal dancer as well as a man who's been honored with every conceivable Uh, uh, a fellow did a painting of him several years ago and he won the equivalent of the turner prize the turner prize is the prize for best work of art in a year how come we don't have that in america greg i love jesus um (laughs) Because we let fucking Rick Santorum run for president in our country. That's why we don't have it. Because George fucking Bush was president for eight fucking years and so was George Herbert Walker fucking Bush was president and Ronald Reagan was president for eight years. That's why we don't have the fucking best work of art as a famous thing that's on TV and talked about in the newspaper like they do in countries like Australia, which, by the way, isn't the most sophisticated place you'll ever fucking go in your life. Or England. When they have the Turner Prize in England, they show it on television and you get in a cab the next day or getting on a bus and the cab driver goes did you see that fucking paste that one. right in America what the fuck is our dialogue about I mean honestly pep it up a little bitches let's go we have to do it you realize we have to do it Obama's not going to do it by the way Obama's never going to go art is important because people give you money to support banks that make art yeah you
0: recently on the on your podcast ran a talk show that you did that seemed to be a a one-off, which I just loved. You Thanks. had Tony Visconti on and uh, Mark Crowley from uh, yeah. the playwright of the Boys in the Band. Um, y- there were uh, spots
1: open for talk show hosts recently. Uh, have you ever thought of uh, putting well, on They're never going to put that? me on as a talk show host. I'm too old. But the that one, I used to do a talk show in L.A., and I did a talk show in Edinburgh. I, I've done a chat show off and on for like 20 years in San Francisco. And in San Francisco, I had local people on there writers, sports writers, uh, actors, singers, bands. Where, where was it uh, broadcast at? Cobb's Comedy Club and then the improv. Uh, a lot of the comics of uh, from San Francisco in those days I had on, all of them. Were, was it broadcast somewhere? No. I just oh, it did just it live. Just live, yeah. It was just called the Greg Proops Talk Show in San Francisco. Then we went to England and it was Greg Proops Chat Show. Then we did it in Edinburgh and I did it there and I had lots of fabulous guests over the years Stephen Burkhoff, uh, 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 Garrison Keeler, uh, Ian Banks, who passed away, that great Scottish sci-fi writer, when he died, we took out the show and listened to it again, and I cried, But because uh, he'd written a book at that time called Dead Air or something. This is the late 90s, early 2000s, so it's about a shock jock mm-hmm. and how he gets kidnapped and this and that. And one of the chapters is, I hate comedians who are mean to the audience. Uh, and he, and it's a diatribe about comics. Who, and In those days, I was particularly lacerating in my stand-up. And I took out the book and Ian Banks is sitting right there and I go, I'd like to read you something from your book. And I read him that paragraph a lot. And I was like, hey, would you like to answer to that? And he just went like, <laughs> you know, and that made me laugh. Um, and like we said, Geraldine Chopin, uh, What's Her Name had written a book. Um, uh, she's, a, she's a rich lady and she's in movies too. She was in um, the Sofia Coppola uh, Maria Antoinette movie. Her name is Natasha Cavasone Frazier. She wrote a book about Sam Spiegel. Because uh producer of Lawrence Arabia, yeah, Arabian. and he, Sam Spiegel produced Quai Lawrence Arabia, and then later did the brilliant Pinter movie Betrayal with Jeremy Irons, Ben Kingsley, and Patricia Hodge. So, she had written this book about him, and you know it was a little warts and all, like you know, basically he was a procurer. You know, mm. uh, he was good at getting the broads down, and as he got older and fatter, the broads got younger and younger and younger. <laughs> Uh, but he did produce two superb... He certainly had that on his resume. Yeah, yeah.
0: Kwai, was it also? the Yeah,
1: Kwai. He produced Kwai. He yeah. he got the fucking money together for David Lean to do those movies. Those yeah. two big-ass movies. Mm-hmm. And that was his talent. He also whipped Omar Sharif into a frenzy over winning the Oscar. He was nominated for Best Supporting Actor and evidently Spiegel, who spoke in a fucking broken European Oh, Mark, you're going to win the Oscar. I guarantee you this performance has knocked their socks, right? Like, you, the, you know, he, with the cigar and the whole... So there's a story in the book where he says to him, and, he, and Sharif's convinced he's going to fucking win. And on the night, he almost stands up too early and, uh-uh, knew... Who, who did win that? The what, 61? Christ, I don't know. Uh, Melvin Douglas, maybe, for HUD or something? Sounds good. Yeah. 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 I'm guessing, but I'm just trying to... Uh, so, the, we had a lot of those interesting people on. And then I did it at Largo in LA, at two different Largos for ages and ages. And had the Concords, Russell Brand, David Cross, uh, 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 every musician in LA uh, uh, Colin Hay, uh, 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 John Bryan, uh, uh, Grantley Phillips, Margaret Cho. Uh, um,
0: it seems perfect for your broad taste yeah, in, and, yeah, and interest Richter, in everything. I, yeah. I,
1: I always loved having you know, Victor Spinetti from all the Beatles movies. He showed up one night. He just showed up, but I knew him, so I put him on. And because I'd seen his one-man show in London, I knew exactly what to ask him. So I pimped him for all his party pieces, and he told all Beatles stories. You know, (laughs) he was best friends with Liz and Dick. Uh, An absolutely gorgeous man. When he was in his late eighties when he passed, he had perfect skin. He looked like he was fifty years old. Like really remarkable. I don't think he ever drank or smoked. Uh, Well, an Italian from Wales. But he knew the Beatles really well. They're, they, he's in three Beatles movies. Wow. He's in uh, uh, Help. Magical Mystery Tour, Help, and Hard Day's yeah. uh, um, so, Night. But so yeah, we did it. And then uh, I stopped doing it because it was so hard to book. And it was always up to me to get people in. So if I booked someone huge like Fight of the Concourse, I couldn't sell enough fucking tickets. Right. If I had two comics that I loved, like Dana Gould or Patton Oswald or something, we didn't sell out and then it was my fault and then we moved to a bigger venue the other Largo was really big the old one was 100 seats so it was cool and I always did it on a Monday or Tuesday I would never on a weekend mm-hmm. once in a while and then we moved to the other venue and the other venue is uh, like 180, 200 seat or 300 seats so like you'd have 100 people in it and it looked like nobody was fucking also the other one was a cabaret with bar a dark bar with mm-hmm. booths and that's what I like the other one was a theater so now you're sitting like this So it was more of a school assembly, and I didn't... I mean, the places are still there. uh, 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 The Largo's still there, and all the comics play there. Uh, Sarah does a show there. uh, Lots of wonderful musicians. And that's how I got in to know all these musicians in L.A., because I hung out at Largo. But I quit doing the chat show there because it just became a huge undertaking. I called personally every one of my guests. Like, I, 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 I met Eliana Douglas doing a thing with her, and she was gracious enough to cast me as her agent in this thing. She did a thing called Ilian Ram and then later Ikea one. And she knows Jeff Goldblum. So I said, I'd love to have Jeff Goldblum on. And she went, here's his number. So I phoned Jeff Goldblum. He's like, hello. Oh, 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 yes, I'll do it. So he did it a couple times. Three times, in fact. So what if I had Jeff Goldblum on? People would come. Yeah. But then if I have, you know, so... Uh, then I started doing the podcast and it alleviated me having to fucking go through the hassle because sometimes it would be on the night I'd finally get a guest booked. The only person who canceled on me was Sarah, Sandra Bernhardt. She was booked. She was going to do it. And then she didn't. She pulled out on the last minute. So I made Drew Carey into Sandra Bernhardt <laughs> and I introdu- interviewed him as Sandra Bernhardt. I gave him a sheet of information. and I'm like, tell me about your child. And he's like, uh, her name is, you know, <laughs> so that we did, me and Drew did that for maybe a year or two. Every week he'd come on and he'd oh, be Caitlin wow. Olson or he'd be, uh, uh, he was, uh, uh, who's Quincy Jones? Uh, Peggy Lipton? No, no. Uh, uh, Lionel Richie's daughter, who, oh, Nicole, Nicole Richie. Yeah. yes. Uh, every week he would be a, a starlet usually. <laughs> and of course we'd do nothing to change him. Yeah. And he made no He's effort to be. very feminine. Yeah, he very made feminine, no effort to be in character. Yeah. Yeah, he would just, <laughs> and he never knew anything because he doesn't follow pop culture at all. Yeah. So I'd go, well, tell me about your movie." And he'd be like, "Yeah, well, you know." So that was a that was a, a gag we did for a long time. So how do you how did you end up doing the one? Was it in New York? Well, the, uh... Uh, Jessica Whites, who's a, a producer uh, agent type in New York, of does bands, is a good friend of ours and my wife's, and uh, she was desperate that we do. The chat show, not the podcast at Joe's pub, which is where we did the one with Goldblum and Lewis black years ago so I and her and my uh, jess and and my wife just full court pressed me on this one, and I fuck no, I don't want to no, I don't want to, and then, okay, she's such a mover that she fucking well, here's the date mm-hmm. you know, so you better get some fucking guests. <laughs> so I started I tried to get my perbelia uh, I tried to get um. You know, all my comic friends, uh, yeah. Lewis, whoever, uh, anybody in New York I could fucking think of. I'm like on the phone, I'm emailing people. People I don't have their email, I'm trying to get it from other people. to, <laughs> Hey, want to do my show? Uh, you end so, up getting
0: Tony Visconti.
1: Well, Tony is an old friend who we met through the artist Rex Ray who passed away. Yeah. Rex did four or five, a bunch of David Bowie album covers and was in contact with Tony at the time. So I, ran, I emailed Tony, this is years ago, he was coming to LA and he'd written a biography uh, about how he worked with T Rex, uh, Moody Blues, David Bowie. did 13 David Bowie albums, did five T Rex albums. Uh, his
0: story about seeing the early rock and rollers was amazing, about
1: seeing Little Richard in his car in the alley. He told me that a the, the restaurant and I made him tell it again because it's. <laughs> uh, so we became friends. And his girlfriend is named Christine Young. And Christine has a band, uh, well, it's a two hander, but they're a band called The Orphans. And uh, she does kind of punchy new wave, uh, almost uh, para-uboo-y, dissonant, you know, little screechy, real loud. And uh, she did a Ferguson show a couple months ago, six months ago, and Dave Grohl and Pat Smear sat in with her. Oh, wow. And I know Dave because I know Fiwebo from the Tubes, and he introduced me to Dave. And so there is, you know, I love knowing all these musicians. They're so nice. (laughs) And so Tony... I asked him to do the show and I don't think he understood. I think he thought I wanted him to come down and watch the show. So he showed up on the night and he's like, am I on the guest list? I'm like, you are the guest. And then if you remember, I got him on stage and he goes, so would you like me to tell amusing stories about the famous people I've known? And I went, that's precisely the idea. I didn't have you on for my help. I had you on because you can tell first person David Bowie T-Rex stories. And he met little Richard when he was a teenager. And uh, Mart. We got to know through Loretta, who we knew through Largo. Loretta Feldman was Marty's widow and was very good friends with us. She was very good friends with Mark Crowley. And when she passed, Jennifer emailed Mark Crowley, and then they struck up a relationship. And now we see Mark when we're in New York. And he's, you know, 80. Uh, is that course, old, really? He wrote The Boys in the Band, which is the first that kicks it all off for gay uh, theater. Uh, and then after him comes Larry Kramer and... Uh, 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 um, uh, one Tony um, Kushner you know all the famous
0: yeah he tells a story about trying to, to get the uh, t- script to I think Ed- Edward Albee f- through uh,
1: Natalie Wood he was Natalie Wood's assistant and best friend yeah.
0: for ages and she 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 sort of wrote off the play this just sounds like an evening at Fire Island or right, something
1: right 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 just a <laughs> bunch of bitchy queens in a room uh, he was best buddies with her and much to her credit he's from Mississippi and she was making a picture down there with uh, Kazan um, maybe. Um, Splendor in the grass. Splendor. And so, uh, I think he tells the story on the show. He worked with Kazan as a PA. Then uh, Kazan said, come to New York Kid and I'll, you know, hook you up. Because he was a tough guy, you know. Mm-hmm. Macho, you know. The director with the shirt off and a cigar, nailing all the actresses, you know. Great, a theater director, great movie director, like way undersung as a movie director. Yeah. He's really, as good as any American filmmaker. There's no...
0: Really great at getting performances out of people. Face
1: in the crowd, uh, Splendor in the Grass is Nollywood and Warren B's greatest acting. And they're, you know, Warren B's not a great actor. He's really good in the movie. Pat Hingle, so great in the movie. Um, well, you know, so uh, he said he, go, he goes to New York. He escaped Mississippi and it happened by chance to meet Kazan on the street. So Kazan gave him a gig. Well, he knew Natalie and then he he worked with Natalie again and uh, she goes, be my assistant. And then he goes, I want to write. And she said, all right, I'm going to pay you, but you have to write the fucking play. (laughs) You know, like she pushed him to do it and so good for her. And they were teenagers. She was probably in her early 20s and he was probably, I mean, they were young kids. This is 50 years ago. And 40 years, yeah, 50 years, God, 60 years ago. Yeah. And uh, so that's how he, so we met him and he's a, he's a lovable guy and he's completely compsmans. So we we're having lunch at Fred's up at, uh, in Barney's in New York, upstairs, where I love the chicken liver. And uh, I go, Look, you want to uh, do my show this weekend? And he goes, Who dropped out? <laughs> and I go, It's not like that. I go, The truth is, I don't have anybody booked. <laughs> And I think you're fabulous, you know. So that's how I got that one to happen. And rather than just do it and not fucking record it, I thought, no, we'll make it a podcast and we'll just throw it in. But that's what I used to do every week for years and years and years, maybe. or once a month. I did it for hundreds, maybe five years in L.A., a couple of years, three, five years in Edinburgh. You seem, you seem made here. for it.
0: You seem very comfortable for
1: well, it. Well, I love it. I mean, I, yeah. like we're talking... My manager is a, you know, really old school and he was always like, you should have a list of questions. And I'm like, why? <laughs> why? These are interesting people. I don't think you need questions with interesting people. Maybe a starting point. Uh, and you don't need... Um, all the musicians I've ever had on the show and I've had some fabulous... Like I say, Colin Hay, John Bryan, uh, 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 Amy Mann, uh, Michael Penn, uh, Grant Lee Phillips. Well, they're women artists too. I never told them what to play. I never told them what I wanted them to play. We never had a meeting. I'd say the show's at nine. Get here for nine. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: So we go upstairs and have a drink, whatnot, and then okay, here's so and so. Here's Amy Mann. Would she come out and sing a song? I don't think you have to tell musicians; they're motivated.
2: <laughs>
1: you don't have to tell them what to do. Yeah. John Bryan did the show for years. John Bryan scored uh, movies. He's a brilliant producer he produced graduation day with kanye west he produced a fiona apples albums like he's just a genius never once did we confer on what we were going to do we didn't have to when you're working with a genius why the fuck would i tell john bryan what to do uh fee came in and sang uh this town which is lee's lee hazelwood number from the 60s you know that one yeah and it was a tubes number yeah the tubes uh, did it on uh, one of their underselling albums (laughs) if they had an overselling album Uh, and it's a kind of a groovy you know this town is a riot town right? it's like a kind of a Sinatra-y and uh, we went up to John's apartment and Fee had brought a CD and um, he played it twice maybe it's a three minute song and John went okay they didn't do a run-through. They didn't rehearse the song. He just learned the changes. On the and... night, he learned it by hearing it. Yeah. On the night, Fee gets up and I go, here's Fee Weibo with John Bryan. Fee gets up and John had deconstructed the fucker and played, playing the chords inverted, swung it so hard and they knocked it out and the place was like, wow, that was great. <laughs> and then uh, one night I got Fiona Apple and Fee Weibo get up and do a song called When I Get High I get low, an old uh, standard that I didn't know for Tin Pan Alley. John played that and Fee and fee sang, Fiona and Fee sang a duet. Well, Fee's six, five, Fiona Apple's three feet tall. So <laughs> I went, ladies and gentlemen, nominal fee and exorbitant fee.
2: <laughs>
1: and that was the kind of fun we had. Like, you know, I had Paul Mooney on the show and Fiona got up and did a Billy Holiday number and, Paul Mooney got really drunk and was like, oh my God, Fiona Apple was so great. Like he was just gushing because she did a Billy Holiday number and he yeah. didn't see that one coming, man. Yeah. You know, he walked into a room full of white people and he was like, and, and he said to me, I don't hug a lot of white people, Greg. And he gave me a big <laughs> hug and he hugged my wife. And he's a genius. I adore Paul Mooney. And he drank cranberry juice and cuvasier. <laughs> <laughs> i should think about going I, yeah. we're having so much fun i want to talk all night but i yeah, i you. gotta be at the club in a couple of hours and i gotta eat dinner
0: oh, thank you so much for coming out yeah. it's it's uh, it's been a pleasure to to sit and speak with you thanks again of
1: course thank you dan any questions hello P- please lighten up the mood what's your name sir it's julian hello, hi Blake. julian how are you babe not too bad for a sunday pretty, pretty yeah okay. fucking hey I love all of your pre but, like, every time we get to your boring, preachy part,
0: as much as I fucking love it, I always feel, like, really down, because, like, you kind of, like, are basically saying, like, all of us are fucked. Which is awesome, which is awesome, because I love the way you do all of it. But what I would wonder is, like, if we kind of managed to have some sort of coup and made you president of the world, (laughs) we could do it. I'm sure we could all do it. I was just wondering, like,
2: what you would do. Maybe... Just on your first day, or in general, like, what would you do? Kind of help us, because
1: we're all kind of Abortion, free and on demand. Health care for everyone. I would strip the defense departments of all their money and make them... uh, 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 They they would have enough to be whatever we require to fucking have... um, Because they're always, oh, we have to defend our country, and we have... what What if people invade us and shit? No one's fucking invading anyone. Maybe you've noticed no one has any fucking money anywhere around the world. Um... I think that a lot of the money that's spent wasted on on things... By the way, food is wasted more than anything else in the world. Food just fucking goes everywhere all the time. That's something we could concentrate on. Instead of just mass consumerism every second of the fucking day. But aren't you rich, Greg? Not really. I, I, I mean, let me put it this way. I've said it before on the show and I don't mean to be a dickwad about it. My mother was a waitress and my father was a bartender. I come from a lower middle class blue collar family but you act all fancy and use big words and wear a suit and shit like that. As I've said on the show, I aspire to. Abortion free and on demand. Equal rights for women. Legislation that says women and children will receive safety and protection under the law and then law enforcement that actually enforces that. I would go through all the courts in the world and remove all of the fucking judges who are living in the 19th century And uh, I would take all the money that's wasted. First of all, I would tax the corporations desperately. And I don't care if they all fucking move to Botswana. Uh, You know what I'm saying? I don't care if they all move to Antarctica and force the penguins into bondage. Corporations have to pay their fair share. I would make the rule of law the rule of law. When a giant corporation deals drugs and deals guns and deals money, they have to be dealt with summarily and given punitive fines that hurt them. Corporations that fuck people over like British Petroleum in the United States when they spilled all the oil in the Gulf uh, near New Orleans. They should no longer be allowed to conduct business in the United States and find and go to court. That would be the first thing I would do. and, and then like that then there would be medical di- medirvana dispensaries everywhere I would also make education and healthcare the main priority for everyone I think that young people get fucked over more than anyone else in the world when we're talking about the poor the poor are women and children that's what the fucking poor are when you saw that factory get blown up in Bangladesh the seven story factory and all the thousands of people die who are they pulling out of the rubble there women and young women, that's who they're pulling out of the fucking rubble, because that's who gets hurt by everything. I would remove the Silvio Berlusconis, the David Camerons, the Barack Obamas, the Stephen Harpers, the whoever you can fucking think of that run the goddamn world and make them go to these places and have a fucking look at what's going on. Not that there's not nice people in the world. There's, there, there are beautiful rich people Who try to help the world But I really think the redistribution of wealth And I'm serious about this uh, it Is the most important thing that could happen Does there have to be security Every second of the day Where we're uh, 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 sent through metal detectors And made to take our shoes off And show our ID a million fucking times No, there doesn't It's not going to fucking happen <laughs> Maybe I'm an anarchist. Uh, Maybe I'm a shitty anarchist with no fucking real plan. But I trust people more than I trust things. And I trust people more than I trust corporations. And I don't want you to make me leader of anything. I want to remain a stone drunk comedian who hectors from the sidelines. If humanity goes to shit in a handbasket, I want to be making jokes about it when it happens. But I believe uh, that people who are young now Are going to save the world I really do believe that That sounds naive Greg But remember Young people didn't grow up with the same bullshit I'm 53 If you're 23 You have a completely different set of values You have a completely different set of uh, of experiences You didn't grow up without computers You didn't grow up watching telly and reading This is called paper Um, (laughs) And you can make things different You don't believe that queers are subhuman. You don't believe that women shouldn't be protected. You don't believe a lot of different things that my crappy generation still holds true, that the shitty fucking generation that went before us fucking imbued in us and shit like that. We're getting over the World War II generation. We're devolving from the boomer generation. And I believe that the generation now is going to make everything good. I'm hoping. I won't live to see it, but God damn it, I hope there's a giant purple hula hoop around the world and not a fucking space station with weapons in it uh in 30 years time does that make any sense one two
0: three four that's it for this episode of the fun to know podcast that's fun to know podcast always with a numeral two you can check out past episodes at soundcloud itunes and stitcher leave feedback at the fun to know facebook page thanks once again to the gracious mr Proops. It's been fun to suddenly see his fans checking out the podcast worldwide from places like Tunisia, Islamabad, and Bernie, England, where a sleeper cell of Krupp's fans apparently live. Check back in two weeks when we're expecting to post an interview with bassist extraordinaire Jamaluddin Takuma, and perhaps a special return guest. That will be next time on the Fun to Know podcast.
2: free I tell you so wake up it's time